0: You're listening to audio from Kingsway Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit kingswaychurch.org. I grew up with, as I told you last week, a, a Protestant dad and a Recently converted Catholic mother. And so their backgrounds were very, very different, but they loved each other and they made a home of it. Uh, my mom today would tell you she doesn't feel like any spiritual giant. Many weeks she talks to me after the services. She's usually watching online last service, occasionally this service. So just in case, hi, mom, didn't talk to you before I use this illustration. But um, <clears throat> my mom will often say, you know, I'm not, I'm not really a Bible scholar. Every week I learn something from your messages. I, I love it. I appreciate it. It's been great for me. But here's the thing that my mom, even though she wasn't a Bible scholar giant, here's the thing, when my mom prayed, things happened. And so there was a season like in my life, I was just a young teenager, that kind of thing, maybe in the 11 to 13 range, my mom started praying. She saw this constant stress in my dad, uh, she, she saw this anxiety and worry, and things were shifting, and my dad had moved from this office to another office to some other things. A company was moving him around a lot, and uh, she just prayed that God would do something related to his work, and about a year or two after she started that prayer, he lost his job, and so we learned quickly as a family, like, hey, whatever you do, don't ask mom to pray. <laughs> like, <laughs> bad things happen when mom prays. <laughs> Now here's the thing is, so even though my mom would say she's not like a a Bible scholar giant or genius, there's a lot she has to learn and grow in and uh, I'm thankful she paid for my education, her and my dad, so that I could teach every single week. But the thing is, God was tuned into my mom's prayers because God's less concerned about whether you understand everything there is to understand or whether or not you have the right words. The whole point is, as we're talking about prayer, is that you come before God and lay things out to the best of your ability, That's all that God's looking for. In fact, I think Max Licato says it the best. Max Licato says this in his book on prayer. Our prayers may be awkward. Our attempts may be feeble. But since the power of prayer is in the one who hears it and not in the one who says it, he's from the South. That's probably how he would read it. Who says it, our prayers do make a difference. So last week we started this series on prayer, we got two more weeks after this, and I made this challenge. I challenge you to do this prayer challenge. So if you're visiting with us today, if you're watching online and you didn't take it up, or you're maybe checking in online, hey, I just wanna welcome you, we're glad you're here. This could be five years from now, you're watching this online down the road. I just wanna say welcome to Kingsway, start it now. If you started last week, pick up now. Here was the challenge, to commit for 30 days, 30 days, to pray every single day. So the way you're gonna do that is you're gonna pray first thing in the morning. So before you turn on Facebook, before you turn on email, don't turn on the TV, don't drop out of bed and go get your coffee, whatever. And then the last thing before you go to bed. So, you got to really think through your schedule and go, okay, I'm not going to watch Netflix till I pass out or play around on whatever, Instagram till I pass out. I'm going I'm to stop all of that and have a moment where I engage with God. And I'll build on that some today by the end of the message. But the whole point was to get a group of people here who love God saying, you know what, I'm going to do this. And a lot of people are doing it. And at this point, a lot of people kind of struggle. When you started strong, it was going great, and then you kind of struggled a little bit and fell off, so you quit. Don't quit. Get right back on it. You don't need to start a new 30 days. Just start over with day 20 two or three, no math in Bible college, whatever that puts us, 30 minus seven, or today count as eight, whatever it is, start tonight before you go to bed, and uh, keep it going now for roughly three more weeks. Just keep it going. It takes about a month for a habit to take place, so I'm not surprised you struggled if this was new for you just pick up or start today. All right. What I want to do today is I want to add to this little challenge, but I'm not going to do it till the end. I got to lay this foundation for us to stand on to do that. So as we talk about prayer and kind of looking at the, the plan for prayer, what I want to do is add one very specific thing to your prayer life. And we're going to do this in the book of Genesis chapter 18. So if you have a Bible, it could be your phone, your tablet, whatever you use, or it could be, we have Bibles, you'll find them in front of you or underneath you. Genesis is the first book in the Bible. <clears throat> so between the first and the last book of all the books I can help you find. It's the easiest one. Genesis chapter 18. All of it will be up here. If you don't know how to find it, not a big deal whatsoever. Let me set the stage. In Genesis 18, we run into our hero who I talked about extensively at the beginning of the year, January, February, March. Go listen to it to get some more context. But what we do is we meet a dude named Abraham. Can I call Abraham a dude? He's Father Abraham. He has many sons. And um, Abraham... Abraham was told by God, hey, I want you to leave your family and go to a land I will show you. And he didn't mean leave your wife, leave your kids. He had no kids yet. But he said, Abraham, I'm going to do something new through you. Through you, all nations will be blessed. You will be the father of many. Well, Abraham only had one son, two sons, depending on how you look at it, but again, February. And uh, what we found out was Abraham didn't really obey God's call very well. He didn't leave all of his family. In fact, he grabs his nephew, Lot, and he brings him with him because he felt responsible for Lot. Well, Abraham's people and Lot's people start fighting and bickering all the time. And Abraham says, look, you're too important to me. What do you think we ought to do? Let's just separate. You go wherever you want. You take whatever land you want. And Lot ends up taking an area near two little towns called Sodom and Gomorrah. And we find ourselves in Genesis 18. And what's happened is God has come down to visit. There's three to visit with Abraham, and so Abraham's feeding these three, and he's taking care of his guests. And uh, now they're getting up to leave, and the reason is they are getting up to go to Sodom and Gomorrah. They have heard that Sodom and Gomorrah is a very dark and evil place, both morally as well as uh, in the way they treat others, as a byproduct of their immorality. And so God is showing up to judge and condemn Sodom and Gomorrah. And so he's meeting with Abraham on the way there. We're going to dig into all that in just a moment. Let's go ahead and open our Bibles now. Genesis 18, verse 16. When the men got up to leave, they looked down towards Sodom. And Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. Then the Lord said, "Huh? shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all nations on earth will be blessed through him, for I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just, so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. Well, first of all, notice the way God interacts with Abraham. I got to kind of do a little Bible teaching one on one. for those of you maybe who don't know this. So We run into a problem anytime we read an ancient document and we compare it to today's modern day standards, whatever that would mean. And there's a lot of things we mean by that. When I was in college a couple moons back, uh, I took a journalism class and we were taught a very specific way to write. And this is how you do it in a way that, you know, has integrity and whatever. Well, if we were to impose those same methods onto the Bible, you would find the Bible doesn't hold up to those methods because that wasn't what they were trying to accomplish in their day. That's important as you read Bible stories that you don't read it through the lens of today. The problem is the lens that it was written through, this took place 4,000 or so years ago. This was written down thousands and thousands of years ago. And so we do our best through archaeology and history to piece together what's going on. And one of the things you need to know as you read this is almost always when we see Old Testament Bible, we see God interacting with us where we are, not where he is. What that means is, while God does know all things, he doesn't come to us with all the things that he knows, he does occasionally through prophecy, but most of the time he comes to us where we are, with what we're dealing with, with what we're struggling with, and he interacts with us in that way, and that's what you need to see when you read this little text. So God looks at Abraham, and they have this little dialogue where he thinks to himself, "Ah, maybe I should tell Abraham what's going on. Now, did God already have that thought? Of course. Of course. Did he already know he was going to tell Abraham? It's not like God went, oh, I didn't know. I probably should have thought of this. But the way you need to read this is through the lens of this extremely important biblical word called covenant. Covenant. Now, some of you know what a covenant is because I've talked about it before. But the very short version of a very long conversation, most of us, when we want to get together and have some sort of relationship with a person, we create a contract. And a contract is you listing out your list of demands and promises, me listing out my demands and promises, and then everybody signs on the dotted line, I agree to this as long as you do that, you agree to this as long as you do that. It could be the purchase of a home, the sale of a car, land, clothing, you name it. Now, there were days in history where people shook hands and your word was considered, signed, and I miss those days in some ways because people's word don't mean as much as it used to mean. Today, we tend to sign things with lots and lots and lots of legal jargon. There were days when people would make sacrifices. They would have a seal or a stamp they would put on things, and people have been doing this for years and years and years. In essence, in a contract, you would always spell out, if you don't do your end of the bargain, then I can do X, Y, Z, whatever that would mean, and vice versa. But a covenant is different. What makes a covenant different is there is a contract in place, but the contract is sealed up in a relationship. So we see this powerful passage in Genesis where they're about to make their contract, but it really is a covenant. And uh, and it seems weird to us, but they take these animal parts and they they literally sacrifice the animal, split it in two, and put it on two sides. And the way this would often work is uh, the two people would walk through the pieces of the dead animal. You're like, this is already weird. I know. I didn't make this stuff up. I'm just telling you what happened in history. And as they would walk through the pieces, it was like they were saying, if I do not keep my end of the bargain... Then you may do to me what we did to these animals. You get it? Except for what happened in, in Abraham's story is God put Abraham into a deep sleep and God walked through the pieces alone. And you're like, well, why is that relevant? Because essentially, what God said to Abraham is Abraham, I'm going to be your God and you are going to be my son, the father of many. And I am guaranteeing this with my own life that if I don't keep up my end of the bargain, you may do to me what we did to these animals. But Abraham, if you don't keep up your end of the bargain, I will do to me what happened to these animals. And this is exactly why Jesus was the fulfillment of the prophecy. Because God's people never did fulfill their end of the bargain. And so God's resolution to the problem was Jesus died on a cross and became the sacrificial animal, so to speak, for all of us. Now, this is important because when God comes down and he's talking to Abraham, he's talking through this lens of covenant relationship. He's saying to Abraham, I love this man. He is my friend. And I want him to know what I'm up to because I know what concerns Abraham. What concerns Abraham? His nephew Lot. And because I love Abraham, I'm going to bring him in on what I'm about to do. God is doing all kinds of things all over the world Abraham has no clue about. But Abraham is intimately invested in what happens to Sodom and Gomorrah because of Lot. you get that? So now look at the very next verse, verse 20. Then the Lord said, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry has reached me. If not, I will know. The men turned away and went toward Sodom, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Then Abraham approached him and said, will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? Now what's going on here? I don't know that what I'm about to say is exactly true but this is the way I picture it and I think it's metaphorically true if nothing else. I think it's analogous. So what I believe happened is as they got up to walk down Abraham got up and he walked in front of the Lord and he stood and positioned himself before the Lord putting himself between the Lord and Sodom and Gomorrah between himself or between the Lord and between Lot and his family. And in that way, Abraham became a mediator between Lot and God. And he so boldly asked. Now, here's the thing. Abraham knows just how evil Sodom and Gomorrah is. He knows that if God gets down there and he's planning to judge the city, he's going to find more than enough to judge it. And so he's petitioning. If you find just 50. Now, look, how is he petitioning? He's calling on the character of the Lord. You are righteous and you are a judge and you have every right to judge them for as evil as they are. I know, I've heard of these things from Lot, but what if you get down there and there are just 50? I mean, it's a big city, but what if there's just 50? Would you really destroy the 50 along with everybody else? And the Lord's answer is, verse 26, the Lord said, if I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for just their sake. Verse 27, then Abraham spoke up now that I've been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ashes, what if the number of the righteous is five less than 50? Will you destroy the whole city for the lack of five people? Now, what's going on here? Well, any guy who's ever tried to buy a motorcycle knows exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> Honey, I've figured out a way. I think in the budget, if we do these things, I think we can afford this. If, if I, I just, I'll spend $5,000, that's it. But honey, if it's 5,250, will you really not let me get the motorcycle for an extra $250? Now, Moses, if or not Moses, wrong guy. Very similar, but different hero. Uh, Abraham is a great businessman. I mean, you go read Genesis, he is a great businessman. He's a great negotiator. He also has his propensity towards manipulation. We've talked about that. I don't have time to go into that today. But he is trying to maneuver God like it would any business deal. I really need to sell this car. So God, what if you find 50? Wait, 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 wait. what if there's not 50? I mean, you say if they get to 45, like, would you really still do it? Now, what is God's response? If I find 45 there, he said, I will not destroy it. Once again, Abraham spoke to him, but what if only 40, 40 are found? And he said, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak. What if only 30 can be found? And he answered, I will not do it if I find 30. There. Abraham said again. This <laughs> is like talking to your children, isn't it? One of my kids, every time, when like he's the slowest eater in the house. And so when the others are done and they're like, hey, can we have ice cream? Can we have it? like, yes, you may. You've finished eating. Well, I want, when you're done eating, you may have it. Well, how many bites do I have to eat? All of it. All of it. How many bites is that? 55. I don't know. It's a number so big. Start eating. Will you count? I'll count. He'll do two. Is that enough? Keep going. <laughs> Talking to Abraham. All right. Now that I've been so bold as to speak, Lord, what if only 20 can be found there? We just went from fives to tens. I think he realized, maybe he'd take it, pushing it too far. You know, I, I, we're just going to speed up. Verse 32, then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak just once more. What if only 10 can be found there? Like, really? What's Abraham really trying to get to? Will you spare a lot? But he stops at 10. And the Lord answers, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And when the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left, and Abraham returned home. Abraham thought he had accomplished what needed to be accomplished. Problem is, when these men get to Sodom and Gomorrah, it is every bit as evil as they were told. And they don't find 10 righteous people. God said he'd spare the entire city for 10. And they can't find 10. So God destroys Sodom and Gomorrah. And again, I'm opening a whole can of worms I don't have time to go into. Questions you may be having right now I think are phenomenal questions and you should ask them. But God did spare Lot. In fact, he says to Lot, grab your wife and your two daughters, get out of the town and do not look back. Lot's wife does look back and she's turned into a pillar of salt. That's a terribly tragic story, a terribly tragic story. But let me ask you a question. Did God answer Abraham's prayer? I hate when you ask these strict questions, Pastor. No, he didn't answer his prayer. He went way beyond what Abraham asked. Abraham never mouthed the words, would you just spare Lot and his family if that's all that there is. But God, and I don't have this quote, but Timothy Keller has this great quote from his book on prayer, God in prayer will answer what you would have asked if you knew everything God knew. And let that one sink in for a minute see in prayer what we're doing is we're coming to the father and we're saying i don't know everything there is to know but from my limited viewpoint from what i understand here are my desires here are my hopes here are my dreams here's the path that i see but i trust you you know more you have more power more wisdom more insight so i hand to you the decision-making process and whatever you decide so be it father May your kingdom come, and may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But the thing I really want you to get to here, there are two very important things. How much more so for you than Abraham? Abraham is able to do this because he is called a friend of God, and he literally is called a friend of God. How much more so for you? Abraham has a very limited view of Jesus, virtually no understanding of where this whole story is going. He has even a very small, limited view of God himself. You have more understanding probably of who God is today if you've been in the church for any length of time than Abraham did. How much more so for you that we are told when Jesus died on the cross and the temple veil was torn in two, that it opened up the way so that all of us now, male, female, young, old, rich, poor, it doesn't matter what sin you've committed or what sins you've been tempted to commit, we can now come into the throne room, Hebrews tells us, of grace with confidence that he hears our prayers. We can run right in, climb up at daddy's lap, and we can petition on behalf of ourselves and other people. This is such a powerful moment as Abraham stands in the gap between God and destruction and saves and spares Lot's life. And I wonder what would happen if there were a church in Avon that would do the same. Here's where I'm going with that. The idea of petitioning prayers are so important and so powerful that we often do not realize what we have in the ask. When was the last time somebody came to you and said, would you pray for me for fill in the blank? And you said, yes, and then forgot. I am guilty. I wish I could, the pastor never forgets. No, I'm guilty. In fact, I was so guilty and so convicted by God that people, and then they'd follow up later and they'd be like, oh, remember that thing I asked you to pray for? You'd be like, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, now I do. And they'd be like, "Oh, I just God answered your prayers, man. He healed. He did it." And I'm like, "Yeah, you go, God, because I never opened my mouth. I got so convicted that I was failing people so often that here's what I started doing. So some of you may see this. Or and I would just say, you know what? Let's pray about it right now. When somebody came comes to me and says, "Hey, would you pray for blah blah blah?" I'll say, "No, but we'll pray right now because I know that my margins in life aren't huge. I don't have time to go through a prayer list of two thousand or three thousand things." But if we pray right now, God's tuned in and he's listening. So let's pray right now. But we just don't realize what is at the fingertips of prayer. There's a guy in the Old Testament, his name is Hezekiah, he's a king, and he's going to die from an infection, and he gets the word from a prophet that he's going to die, and all he does is roll over in his bed, and he looks at the wall, and his is like all his prayers, basically this, God, would you remember your servant Hezekiah, who's been faithful to you, while tears poured down his cheek? God heard that simple statement, and he showed up, sent the prophet, and healed him. Elijah shows up, sees the degradation of Israel, falls on his knees, prays for God to make it stop raining. Three and a half years later, he decides that finally God's breaking through and he prays for it to rain again. It stopped in the one moment and it started in the next. James later tells us in the book of James that Elijah is a man just like me. I I don't know about you, I've never prayed for anything that crazy because I'm a little afraid to pray for anything that crazy. Because maybe like my mom, God will do something crazy. But do you realize the power at your fingertips to pray for others? At one point, God is livid with the Israelites and Moses goes to God and God's ready to walk away. They're in the desert and God says, please don't do this. Moses says, please don't do this. Who, who's gonna go with us if you don't go with us? And oh, by the way, these are your people. You brought them out of Egypt. If you just leave them here in the desert to die, it's gonna be your name and your fame that's gonna be blasphemed. Please don't do this. God relents and turns back. And what we see is Abraham points us to Jesus and Moses points us to Jesus and Elijah points us to Jesus and you get to point people to Jesus. Your prayers are so unbelievably effective and powerful and accomplish much If you'll pray. If you'll pray. You don't have to have the right words. You don't have to have a degree. You don't have to be a professional prayer like I am. I I sometimes think I stink at prayer. In fact, there's a passage, Romans 8, that says, when we don't even know what to pray, the Holy Spirit cries out on our behalf with groanings that we don't even understand in order to communicate on our behalf, which means even when you don't even know what to pray, God already knew what you needed to pray, and he's going to pray it for you. How cool is that? You literally can't go wrong except for keep your mouth shut. Only way you can lose. Think about this for a minute. So just watch out for that. As I was writing down just a few quick things. So Jesus wakes up, or sorry, stays up all night praying and asking God to give him wisdom. The next day, he, he chooses the 12 disciples. He even chooses Judas because God told him to. So he stays up all night. God, what, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. I need your help. I need your help. Wisdom. I love you, Father. We have a friendship and a relationship. And he chooses the 12 that's in uh, Luke chapter 6. In Mark chapter 1, Jesus wakes up early in the morning while it's still dark. Yeah, I know, right? Sometimes the only way you can pray is do it when it's dark. And he wakes up early in the morning, and he's praying, and he's praying. And the disciples wake up. The sun comes up, and they can't find Jesus. Where'd Jesus go? And there's a crowd of people who've gathered. They come back to get healed and, and to deal with all their junk. And the disciples are freaking out, like, we got to keep the, ha- the crowd happy. And they go find Jesus. They're like, Jesus, what are you doing? Like, all these people need you. Why aren't you, like, helping them? And Jesus says, I gotta go. What do you mean you gotta go? Like, we gotta go to the other side of the lake. Jesus, look at the multitudes. We need them to be happy. If you're gonna win and overthrow the government, Jesus says, no, I was up all, I've been up praying for the last couple hours while you were sleeping. I need to go. God gave me my mission. At another point, Jesus comes to uh, Simon, and you'll find this in Luke chapter 22, and he says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. What that means is, Satan has asked to put you through a terrible, terrible test, but I prayed for you, that you would, your faith would not fail, and afterward, turn back and strengthen your brother's. What I love is if you know the context of the story, uh, all the disciples are tested terribly when Jesus is arrested, and Peter does actually fail It's like Jesus said, Satan has asked to test you, Peter, and I just want you to know it's not gonna go well for you. In fact, Peter later is like, not me, Lord, no way, I'll I'll go with you to the end, and he pulls out a sword and lops off a Roman guard's ear, and I mean, if you know the story, it's pretty tragic, because Jesus said, no, 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 see, before the rooster crows, you're gonna fail me three times. It's going to happen, Peter. I was talking to God, he already gave me the insight, it's gonna happen, but then he says this, Peter, I prayed for you. That even though I know you're going to fail, I prayed for you. So that after you have failed, you'll turn back and your faith will be built up and you'll pour into others. See, we were always supposed to be the hands and the feet of Jesus. Jesus was the hands and the feet of Jesus. I'm not sure that made sense. The point is we were always supposed to stand in the gap between God and others, petitioning heaven on their behalf. Even Jesus wanted this. Jesus goes to the garden right before the night when he's gonna be crucified and he kneels down. He's got bloody sweat pouring from his forehead. He's so stressed out. The capillaries in his forehead have burst. And he took. And we're down to eleven disciples. Judas has already gone to betray him, so he's got eight disciples here. It says he took Peter, James, and John, a stone's throw away, and then he went a stone's throw away beyond that, and he knelt down to pray. And while he was kneeling down to pray, he's so stressed out. He finally gets up to go check on the others, and he comes back and he finds Peter, James, and John, and the others are sleeping. And he looks at me and says, "Can you not even just stay awake for me for one hour?" And he goes back and he prays again. And he comes back again. They're still sleeping. And he says this, the spirit is willing, it's the body that's weak. In other words, you don't realize the power and the potential that is in your fingertips, in your words, in your brain, in your heart, if you would just surrender your life to God and knock on heaven's doors and say, Jesus needs you right now. Father, I don't know what's going on, but would you encourage him? Would you strengthen him? Would you help him to have whatever it takes to make it through this moment? My son, my daughter, right now, they're facing a terrible temptation, a terrible pressure, and I'm afraid they're going to fail. God, afterwards, may they turn back and feed their brothers and sisters. God, my husband right now, they just got this diagnosis, and I'm scared, and they're scared, and I don't know what's going to happen, and I don't even know where we're going to find out the diagnosis fully and what the treatment is. God, I need you to take care of this. Would you provide the resources? Would you do what you need to do. God, my spouse has been unfaithful. I need to know, God, that you're going to save this marriage, redeem this thing, keep my family together. God, that bill came in, and I don't know how I'm going to pay this thing, but God, would you not let my husband turn to something dark or evil because he's stressed out about it? What would happen if we really believed prayer accomplished As James says towards the end of his book, the prayers of a righteous are powerful and effective and accomplish much. This is why Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, I urge then first of all. First of all? Like above everything else? We're in chapter 2. Yeah, I got some pleasantries out of the way, but above everything, above everything else, Timothy, that petitions and prayers, intercession and thanksgiving be made for all people. Let's just stop there. All people, yes. What are we talking about here? Well, petitions means I don't just pray once and give up. Okay, well, God, I asked. You heard me. No, it means ask and keep asking. Why do we need to keep asking? I don't know. I wish I had some great Bible verse to say, and here's why. All I know is it says, do it. I I know that based off last week's sermon and everything I read in the Bible, the more I pray, the more my heart becomes aligned with God's heart. And I wish that were easy as one prayer, but often it takes many, many, many prayers for me to surrender my will and finally go all in on God's. To trust him and to find the encouragement and the strength that I need. But I also know there's this weird passage, I believe it's in like Daniel chapter nine-ish, somewhere, can't remember now. And Daniel's praying and God sends an angel, and the angel shows up and says, man, I was dispatched to come to you the moment you started praying, but I was held up by the Prince of Persia, which we don't know exactly what that means except for that we think it's some sort of spiritual thing going on. That is possible when you pray, there's an answer on the way, but you have an enemy trying to slow it down. What do I make of all these things? Petitions and prayers and intercession at thanksgiving." these are the weapons that I have to get on my knees and you might say your little war room and go to battle with the evil one on behalf of your spouse, your parents, your children, your neighbors and Jesus says your enemies. Your enemies. Jesus says everybody in the world treats their friends and their family kind. You, if you want to be my people, you love your enemies. Why would I do that? Because that's what God did to us. While we were yet His enemies, Christ died for us, Paul says. Look at the next verse here, verse two. Who are we praying for? For kings and all of those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. Let us just stop for a second. We believe that 1 Timothy was written probably somewhere between 62 and 64 A.D. If you know anything about the calendar, at around that time frame, 65 to 66 A.D., unbelievable torture and suffering happened to Christians at the hands of Nero. So Nero would literally take Christians and use them as torches at his parties, which were often treated to, I won't even go there, just terrible debauchery, terrible debauchery. You read history, the dude had issues. But he would put Christians on wooden poles and light a fire, not on them, around them, so they would burn and die slowly, and that's how they lit up the lights for their parties. Among other things, like creating uh, little caskets too small for humans to fit in and then stomping them in there and then burying them alive. This is what they did to many Christians. At the same time, Paul is saying, pray for them. Pray for the kings and the rulers everywhere. Why in the world would I pray for these people who are doing such evil things? Because prayer works. Because God, well, let's just look, let Paul say it. Verse three, this is good and pleases God our Savior who wants all people to be saved, to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. The reason God wants you to pray for your children and your spouse and your families and your life group and our church and this your neighborhood and your coworkers and especially your enemies is because Jesus died for them and He loves them and there's going to come a day when it will be too late. And so basically, Paul's saying, on our watch, on your watch, on my watch, let's make it really hard for people who don't know Him to go to hell. Let's make it really, really hard because we're just gonna pray and pray and pray. God, would you bless? God, would you move? God, would you provide? Would you break? Would you do whatever it is you gotta do, God? God, I need you to get their attention. God, she's being really mean to me at work again, and I don't like her. She's rude. She's cruel. She's gossipy. She's slanderous. But God, I'm gonna show up, and I'm gonna buy her lunch like you told me to. God, that guy is it just, ah, uh, he's just, Flirting with me all the time, and he won't leave me alone, and he wants to ruin my marriage. God, that girl and the way she dresses, it's so hard, but God, would you bless her? Would you help her to find herself in you? God, that guy cheated me. He took money from me. He ripped me off. He's trying to sue me. Can you believe that? God, help me to love him in your name. What would happen if we'd start knocking on heaven's door? I believe you're listening, God, and I believe you can act. Paul goes on, I'm almost done. He says this, 1 Timothy chapter two, verse eight, like two verses later, he says this, therefore, like in light of everything I just said about prayer, therefore, I want the men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. I got a soapbox, but I don't have time to get on it. So, this is not a mankind passage. There are two different ways to understand like man and mankind. There are a lot of Bible passages where it's talking about all of humanity and it uses men or mankind often in our English translations. This is talking about men. Well, why? Does he not want women to pray? Of course that's not the case. Of course he wants women to pray. And at every time in the Bible that men aren't leading well, God raises up a woman. That doesn't mean women don't have power or strength. Women have unbelievable power and strength. I talk on this all the time. So if you're visiting with us today, if you're watching online, you've never heard me teach any other time. You need to go listen, especially my marriage series. I believe God created men and women equal, but different. God made Adam first, then he made Eve. And that doesn't mean Eve was an afterthought. It means it took practice to get it right, right? I'm kidding. (laughs) What it does mean is they're different. And God was establishing leadership. And when godly men raise their hands and fall down on their knees, and they pray for their families, for their wives, for their children, for their communities, for their churches, something powerful happens. You can clap for that. And one of the ways that Satan has tried to attack America is just to tear down the family unit so that men are far too often aggressive, abusive, cruel, rude, crass, perverted, and they have no power in their prayers. The prayers of a righteous man are powerful and accomplish much. Are there any righteous men in the room? Are there any men in the room who want to be a righteous man? Are there any men in this room willing to make Mm -hmm. this moment right now a line in the sand moment, a moment where you say, I'm not going to sit down anymore. I'm going to stand for my church, for my family, for my community, and even for my enemies. I will stand in the gap between God and them and petition on their behalf. If so, would you just stand right now? Amen. 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 So don't sit yet, here's your challenge, man, do it. Here's how, every night this week, I don't know your schedule, you figure it out, all right? There's grace here, you figure it out, but every night this week, every day this week, you gather your family together and you lead them in prayer. I don't know what to say, I don't care. You're the least communicative in your family, unless you're me, you're the least communicative in your family, but figure it out. Open your mouth. It doesn't matter what you say. You say it all wrong, Abraham screwed the whole thing up and God answered his prayer anyway. God doesn't need you to be a professional prayer. God needs you to be a righteous man who opens his mouth. So you pray for your spouse and you pray for your kids and you pray that your kids don't fall into temptation. You pray for God to deliver them from the evil one. You pray by name for somebody that's an enemy of yours. Who's making life hard and painful? You pray for God to use you to be a salt and a light, and in doing so, you show your family what Jesus is like. And we watch this church change, we watch our community change, and we watch the world change. Now, if you're yeah, now if you're a woman who is married to, friend of, sister of, it's appropriate in whatever way you can reach out, grab a hand, touch a shoulder, or just outstretch your hand. We're going to pray over these men, and I'm going to wrap up. Let's pray. Lord God, we need godly men. Men who pursue righteousness and honor and integrity become men of their words. Their words mean something. A handshake means something. A commitment means something. That there's follow through and promise. That they're trustworthy and dependable. God, you tell us you will answer those prayers every single time. For these men who are standing, God, if there's anything in their life that doesn't represent what I just said, that God, may they get rid of it right here, right now, making a commitment that whatever it costs, they will be righteous before you. And as they open their mouth and grab their family and pray today their family. God, even the men who stood up because everybody else was standing up and they didn't even want to stand up, but they stood up. God, may you convict them right now, deeply, profoundly to lead their family in prayer. God, we pray that you would bring immediate change, that they would be encouraged to continue the fight. We ask a blessing over them in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. You can be seated. I'm going to close with this. Yeah. I'm gonna close with this. So here's your prayer challenge, right? I gave it to you last week. Same three things. If you've already started last week, no matter how many times you failed, get back on it. You got 20 something odd days, three plus weeks, a little over three weeks left. Begin the day, end the day. But I want you to add these two things. It's for everybody now, not just the men. You're gonna add these two things. Number one, I want you to pray for a Christian you know that needs a healthier relationship with God. God. They've gotten lazy, they've gotten undisciplined, they're stumbling in sin, they're not walking with him, they need to repent, and you're gonna lift them up. You're gonna knock on heaven's door on their behalf. You're gonna stand in the gap. And number five, you're gonna pray for one person in your life you don't think knows God, specifically through Jesus. And a name came to mind while I was writing this message, I know exactly who God wants me to be praying for and looking for the opportunity to extend an invitation say, you ought to come check out my church sometime. Just come. And I don't know how many times I'm gonna have to ask. I just know that I'm gonna be going, God, I'm gonna bug you. Until something happens, I'm gonna keep knocking. And God's gonna say, come in. Let's do this together. What we're gonna do now is we're gonna go into communion time. So I'm gonna ask communion service to go out. And we're gonna take communion together today. And we're gonna knock on heaven's door together today. So I'm gonna give you a few moments. There'll be some music playing and and I'm gonna give you just a few moments to focus. Take the bread, take the juice. Don't take it, just hold it and we'll take it all together.